Let me invite you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, it's found on page 554 of the Pew Bible. That's page 554 if you're using the Pew Bible, Psalm 42. Of course, as I ask you to turn to the book of Psalms, you're, I hope you know this, you're not really turning to a book. Uh, the Psalms uh, are utterly unique in our Bible. They are not a narrative like, say, Ruth. They are not a history like Genesis. And they are not a letter like Romans. Rather, the book of Psalms is a collection a collection, an organized collection of hymns and prayers and songs written by the people of God, many different authors, over a prolonged period of time. And you may not have realized this before, but they are an organized collection. They have been set up a certain way for you to read, for you to study. And so some of you might notice in your Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's there, that Psalm 42 begins a new part of the collection. So you have there the words, book two, book two. The first book of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 41, uh, are Davidic. Almost every single one, 38 of those 41 are for sure of David. And we think some of the others might be too. So almost every single one is of David. Oh, Palmer Robertson, in his wonderful book on the Psalms, titles the first book, Confrontation. If you think back to some of the Psalms we've looked at, there's a lot of confrontation. You have God's anointed Messiah, David, uh, seeking to take the throne, and yet there's all kinds of obstacles and difficulties, and many of those Psalms in the first book are about that confrontation between the kingdom of God in the world and the kingdom of the devil, and just the struggle for what God is doing in the world. We come now, though, to book two of the Psalter, and it begins quite differently. It begins with a series of Psalms, eight of them, that are not written by David, but if you look at the beginning of Psalm 42, they are written by the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah. Psalm 42 through 49, this little mini collection, is all done by the sons of Korah. These men were priests. Their father was a horrible rebel. He rebelled against Moses, and he was killed by God for rebelling against Moses. But in a wonderful act of grace, God spared his sons. And his sons, they were Levites, they were of the priestly line, were later made by David and Solomon musicians. Musicians in the temple. So these were gifted priestly men who had musical ability. And this collection that we're in now is, are their songs, their prayers, their choruses. And there's actually, we'll see, a sort of movement to these. We start out today with a lot of mourning, a lot of sadness, a lot of uh, danger and difficulty. And then by the end, we are just rejoicing because the king has arrived, the messianic king, and the temple is being renewed and all of Israel is being renewed. So that is um, where we are. Now, you might also notice um, in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, that almost all commentators Almost all pastors, almost everyone agrees that Psalm 42 and 43 are actually one psalm. They share the same refrain. So if you look, you'll see verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's the chorus or the refrain. It happens again in verse 11. 
and then it happens again in 43 verse 5. And so it's, it's widely understood that what we're really looking at here is not two psalms, but really one psalm together. And it's all held together by this wonderful, wonderful chorus and refrain uh, that we find in verse 5, 11, and then 34 verse, or 43, verse 5. That's like a lot of our hymns, isn't it? Like, great is thy faithfulness. We sing verse 1. Then we sing the chorus, then we come back, we sing verse 2, and then we sing the chorus again, and then we go back, verse 3, and the chorus once again. That's very much the pattern here. Maybe this is where our hymn writers got this pattern from, from the Psalms themselves. Well, I hope and pray this familiar pattern will be a great blessing to us. Today we're going to focus mostly just on the first two stanzas or verses, which are Psalm 42, but I am going to read both. So if you would stand, we'll sing this one great psalm together and hear it. Psalm 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. But my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of God. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do now pray and ask that you would open to us your word. And as you open to us your word, would you give us hearts that like the deer in summer pant for and long after the word, that we might receive it with joy as it really is your word and be transformed and encouraged by it. 
Give this grace to us, we pray, this hour, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As you probably noticed from reading it, this is a psalm of lament. Lament. The psalmist laments. He grieves. It's just a nice way of saying grieving. Um, He's lost something. But what has he lost? Well, on one level, you might say, if you read these verses carefully, I think, that he's lost access to the temple. On the surface, at least, that's that's the issue. And you can understand, remember, this is written by a priest, a son of Korah. You can understand how tragic and how terrible that was for him. He would be incredibly upset. This was his whole calling. His whole life was to make worship music around the temple. To be around it all the time was the joy of his life. I think of Samuel Rutherford, who is uh, probably the man who's had the greatest spiritual impact on me. He was a Scottish pastor, and I remember reading his letters when he was under house arrest, and how he would just mourn and grieve in every letter for his congregation, for his church, because he was like a priest without a temple. He couldn't go and lead people in worship. He couldn't go and preach, and it was, it was quite literally killing him. And you can understand some of that here, and even more intensely for this son of Korah. He laments He laments the loss of the temple. But I don't think it's just the loss of a place that is filling his heart at this time. Because all the laments of scripture, and there are lots of them, all of the laments of scripture come back ultimately to a sense of loss that we feel all the time. That in one way or another, God is distant from us. That we have in some way uh, lost his presence his smile, his joy, the radiance of his face. And especially in times of grief and sorrow and suffering, we feel this intense uh, sense of absence that comes with suffering and pressure and grief. And, And God often seems distant and even uninvolved. All the laments, all the laments of Scripture come back to this one great loss and this great one question, where are you, God? The greatest, strongest, and most important lament in all of Scripture does this so well. You know it. It's Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the lament Jesus chose for himself on the cross. To capture this grief, this desperation, this sense of the distance between him and God, this this deep brokenness, the psalmist chooses uh, in chapter 42 to use the metaphor of water to try and help us understand what he's going through. And so you'll notice in verses 1 through 4, the first verse or stanza, we have the metaphor of a deer animal out in the wild, and it's the heat of summer. And the deer doesn't keep water stored anywhere, right? He's dependent on the streams, the brooks, and he's panting uh, for water, trying to cool himself down. He's dying, literally, of thirst. And the priest says, this is how I feel. This is what life is like for me right now. And then in the second verse, uh, verses 6 through 10, the second stanza, 
uh, that uh, picture of water grows even more intense because instead of finding the cooling streams he's looking for, he instead finds a storm. He writes there, all your billows, all your waves have gone over me. I was seeking refuge in God. I was seeking those streams of still water that are promised in Psalm 23, that he would lay me down in green grass, and instead I got a storm. Instead, I just went deeper into grief and despair and worry and pain. And meanwhile, in the midst of all this, in the midst of the midst of this incredible picture of suffering, deep, deep suffering, you have this refrain, this self-talk. The psalmist turns both to God and to himself and says, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I not hoping in God? And he tells himself again and again, don't be utterly cast down. Remember who God is. Remember who he's been for you. He is your God. He is literally in Hebrew, your Yeshua, your Jesus, your Joshua, your salvation. So hope in him again. And there I think lies the key to the whole psalm, that he doesn't allow the suffering of this life to simply push him inward. He does do that in his lament. But ultimately, he allows the suffering of this life to push him outward towards God in prayer. And so he, he almost seamlessly moves, doesn't he, from intense grief, internal grief, to turning his eyes, his mind, and his heart to Christ and to who God is for him in Christ. But it's not easy. Three times he goes down into despair. Three times God answers him with refrain, it is not easy. Now, we're not priests, and our world is different. We don't have a central temple that any of us is sitting here grieving over at this moment, but the issues are the same. The feeling of desperation, the feeling of depression and discouragement that so many of us deal with, the grief of living in a world that is dominated by violence, by illness, and by death, and the despair that comes with it. So let's listen to his lament, and especially to his refrain, and may God use them to strengthen us in our own darkness. So let's look first at the lament, the first verse of the lament, it comes to you in verses 1 through 4. Look, look again at those verses. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food. Like they're being stuffed down his mouth, right? Day and night, while they say to me, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You're probably familiar uh, at one time or another in your life with the little uh, contemporary chorus uh, based on this verse, as the deer panteth for the waters, so my soul longeth after thee. After thee. And that is a lovely little song. I've enjoyed it, used it many times, uh, and encourage you to use it. It's a lovely little chorus. But 
I do want to warn you a little bit in, in one way because it, it, it kind of, in a sense, misses the point while still being true and lovely and useful. Because when we sing that song, if you sing it all the way through, uh, it sounds like it is simply a song of longing after God and really an expression of delight in his presence and of enjoying him. And of course, that is great and it's wonderful. Like I said, it's a good song. But it's actually not what this verse communicates. Uh, this verse uh, is a lament. It is full of sadness, which is why as Americans we have problems singing it and we don't create little choruses about it because we don't like sadness. Uh, the picture here is, is not really a, a pleasant picture. As the deer longs for the stream, pants, uh, is ne maybe even near death, is suffering, so my soul is thirsting for God. When shall I appear before him? Why does he seem absent? There's more a note here that we can lose. If we just sing the chorus, we can lose here the note of desperation that is built into this. To put a finer point on it, uh, we can uh, name the exact struggle here because the psalmist names it. The priest here is longing for the temple. He's longing for corporate worship. He's, he's longing for being with believers in worship. Well, how do we know that? Well, verse 2, he writes, When shall I come and appear before God? That is a Hebrew phrase, that language, when shall I appear before God? That is taken right from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and it's the words Moses used to instruct the Jews, especially Jewish men, three times a year at the main festivals, you must come and appear before God. It is your duty. It is your calling. Come to the temple and appear in his full presence with other believers. And so that's what he's expressing. He's lost the wonderful liturgical festival life of God's people. And that's why we have verse 4 where he writes, I remember, I can think back how I would lead the procession to the house of God. He wants to get his lyre again. He mentions that here, one of his instruments, so that he can go in front of the congregation and lead them into the temple grounds in public worship. Now, because we're Americans, uh, let's be honest, uh, we're just not that into corporate public worship. Uh, some of us are, some of you are because you've been trained that way in this church, but most of us grow up in sort of broader evangelicalism, believing that the real heart of worship is what you do in private. That it's really, God is really about private worship and then when it's convenient and when it works for us and when the church has a good set of programs for our family, maybe uh, we'll get involved in some public worship, but even the public worship really should be about my private worship. It really should be primarily about me in the pew by myself uh, worshiping God. Well, the Bible just doesn't think like that. The Psalms don't work like that. And the priest here certainly doesn't think like that. He can pray. He can worship God privately. But he's lost something that's absolutely essential to him. And it's left him thirsting. It's left him panting. He's lost the public worship of God at the temple. Being away from the temple for him means feeling that God is distant. And so he writes, when shall I come and appear before God? Now, don't take that the wrong way. Because we're modern people, we're prone to take that line the wrong way. The son of Korah here, the priest, he is very aware that God is everywhere. He knows that. 
He is very aware that God is with him. You'll notice in this psalm, he talks about your steadfast love is with me. Night and day, I feel your presence. He's far away from the temple, and yet he's writing this psalm of praise. He knows God hears him. So he's not unaware. He's not a fool. He's not superstitious. He doesn't think that God is just at the temple and nowhere else, like the pagan people around him. He knows God's everywhere. However, he is grieving something. It's a little bit of what we felt during COVID, right? When some of us went a year for the first year in our life, our Christian life, without public worship, without hearing the voice of people around us declaring the praise of God. Something was lost. Some of us went many months without communion. For the first time in our lives, we went six months, a year, without the Lord's Supper. And, and he's uh, grieving this. He's grieving the loss of these things. And so that's why the, this first verse ends the way it does. If you look at the very end of verse 4, what's on his mind? What does he want? Well, he puts it there. He wants a multitude-keeping festival. That's what's on his heart. Now, I want to argue that this is not just a piece of Old Testament faith, an old relic, but it's a spirit, it's an attitude, a thirst that should be with all of us. In saying that, I'm not, please don't misunderstand, I am not downplaying the power of prayer at home. I'm not downplaying the importance of family worship or private worship or having a prayer closet. I do all those things. I love all those things. They are, are just wonderful, wonderful times beyond description. But brothers and sisters, you need to know this. The future, the glorious future, the permanence we're marching towards does not look like you alone in your prayer closet. The future looks mostly like this. All of us together, all of us praising God. The future looks like, verses 1 through 4, fulfilled, a festival, a multitude-keeping festival. Nothing makes this clearer to us, if you're wondering if this is true, nothing makes this clearer to us than the book of Revelation. You go into Revelation, you follow John through his vision, and he enters heaven, and what do you have? You have a massive festival going on with Christ at the center and all his angels and all the saints, all the people who've gone before us, all the prophets gathered together in what really is, if you look at it, a massive public worship service. And they're all caught up in it. And so that longing should be in each of us. Yes, we are. We're not denying for a moment Paul's wonderful teaching that each of us individually is a living temple of the Holy Spirit. That is absolutely true. And it is true that we don't have a single central shrine like the Jews did. This is not a temple in the way that was, admittedly. However, we should be longing, we must long if we're Christians, to be together in worship, and to ultimately to be together in the heavenly temple in worship. John is so clear in the book of Revelation as John tells us what heaven is like. Have you noticed this? The picture he paints is of a temple. 
You know, you've got the martyrs, we're told, who are under the altar of the temple. You have Jesus. When he first enters heaven, he finds Jesus robed as a priest, walking among the menorah, the great candlestick, which he says represents the churches. He's tending to the needs of the church. He's, he describes heaven as it is, as a massive temple. And, and the scriptures tell us, the author of Hebrews tells us, that when the Jews built their temple... It was the model in heaven that was the basis. That was the original. And the earthly one was like a little diorama, a little model of what was actually really happening, truly happening in heaven. And did you know that the Garden of Eden, if you carefully study the opening words of Genesis, uh, the Garden of Eden itself was a temple garden. In his wonderful book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, Dr. Gregory Beale shows in detail, for hundreds of pages, in detail how the Garden of Eden was actually laid out as a temple and how ancient people all through the Middle East for thousands of years built their temple compounds to look like Eden because they had from Adam a memory of what a temple should look like. And so, brothers and sisters, we are all meant to live in and around a temple. Therefore, we can join in the singing of this lament, can't we? We can each of us say, How long, O Lord, how long until I can appear before you there in your glory, till I can join the festival? Not as some kind of death wish. I'm not talking about escaping life because it's hard. But as believers, there should be within us a trajectory, an orientation towards heaven that we long to be there. We know we're meant to be in a temple as priests of Christ, to be there worshiping him. And if you think this through, that underlying desire that we have should change the way we approach Sundays and corporate worship and laments. Since our AM and PM worship, our morning and evening worship, are the closest picture you get in this life of that coming festival, they should be your delight. They should be your delight. It was, uh, took me a while to get this, but I remember as a young man learning over time that the, the, the highlight of my spiritual life was not primarily, as wonderful as it was, my quiet time with Christ but rather my joyful festival time with God's people in God's house on the Lord's Day. And I would encourage you to think that way, to think of this as we're worshiping together, not because I'm preaching, but because of what we're doing together, that this is the highlight of your spiritual week, the highlight of your spiritual life, and the closest picture, the moment when you come closest, right up against the veil, to what heaven will really be like. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, while you think on these things, pray. Pray for our shut-ins, how they grieve. They grieve like us because they want to be in the temple of heaven. All Christians have that desire. But then they are also in many ways prevented from this, which is the image, the foretaste of that. So pray for them. Pray for them. When John sees Christ in heaven... As I said, he sees Jesus dressed as the high priest. He's in a garment that John describes as a priestly garment, a garment that would have been well known to the sons of Korah. 
and he finds him among the lampstands, the menorah, this great huge lamp that was in the holy place in the temple, and he finds him tending these individual wicks. And we're then told that these individual lights represent the churches of Asia and that Jesus, as the great high priest, is now tending to those churches. And then what happens right away after that? Jesus tells John, write these words to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Write these words to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, there's two possibilities there. One is that he's talking about the pastors. The reason for that, not because we're angels. Uh, The reason for that is the word angel can mean messenger. So it could just mean messenger. Or it could mean that these churches, these congregations are watched over by angels. And that angels are present when they meet and worship. Regardless of what John meant exactly, what is intended there. The truth is there in, throughout Scripture that wherever God's people meet, there Christ is in the midst of them. That's his promise, that he is the king of angels will be present. Well, you say, but Jesus is everywhere. Yes, yes, he is. He's everywhere. The son of Korah knew that. But the son of Korah also knew that there was a special presence of Christ with his people when they meet to worship. Why else would Jesus give us that promise? Why else would John see these things? So verses 1 through 4, the first verse of the laments, is very much a longing to be restored to corporate worship, to be restored to the temple, to come and appear before God in that unique and special way that happens for believers when we gather to worship him. Now in verses 6 through 10, the lament changes He seems to, he gives the first refrain in verse 5. He seems to maybe doing a little bit better. But then much is true with us, right? He plunges back into into the despair and difficulty of this life. And and now he's lamenting uh, not just the loss of the temple, but the way in which God's name is being desecrated by the people around him. He's lamenting living in a world where people constantly blaspheme, malign, mock, and desecrate everything that is holy and everything that God has given us. And it kind of comes to a crescendo. The lament comes to a crescendo in verse 10. Listen to the way he puts this. It's very dramatic, intentionally so. As with a deadly wound, a knife wound in my bones... My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It is killing this faithful priest to hear the taunts, the ridicule, and the blasphemies of God's enemies. He sees how the godly are being persecuted, mocked, and how God is being mocked, and it's eating him up inside. I could be wrong, but I know for myself, I see this as a sign of maturity in the Christian life. What I mean by that is as I get older, and I, I think I see this in you as well, as, as we get older, as we mature as Christian, uh, things bother us differently. When you're a young Christian, certain things are like your top concerns and other things are lower. And then I feel as you mature as a Christian, it alters. And so I think I can honestly say that as I've, I've gotten older and hopefully a little more mature spiritually, Uh, This has moved up to be almost number one. 
When I think about the grief of living in this world, I think the thing that hurts the most as time goes by is just to hear and see what people say about Christ, to see how they treat him, the horrible things that are said of him every day on this planet, the horrible things that are said against God and done against God. And you get to this point where you, I hope, where you're no longer really angry for yourself. You're not being defensive. That's not what it is. It's genuine, genuine pain and grief and lament, mourning, grieving, because maybe even someone you love, someone close to you is literally blaspheming God every day of their life using his name as a curse word, treating him with contempt, every offer to share his word, every offer to hear from him, every offer of his mercy. People who hear the gospel and are bored are like, why are you bothering me with this, right? The insults upon God and the mockery of his people. Where is your God? Where is your God? You don't, you don't have the power here. Look how helpless you are. Now, in the case of this particular priest, I think we can say even more than that. The text here actually gives us a clue to how all this is happening in his life. And it comes in verse 5. He says, this taunting is happening as I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Now, why, why is he saying that? Why does that matter? Well, this location, we know, is one of the last places in the north of Israel, where you can still look back over your shoulder and see Jerusalem and the mountains of Jerusalem. And it is also the exact path the priests were led captive away from Jerusalem into captivity into Babylon. And so you see the picture, right? The temple they love, the temple they've served at, has been looted by these pagans. And here's a priest being taken away from the only place he wants to be, the place he studied his whole life to be there, to do music there. This is where he wants to be, like a swallow finds its home, right? He wants to be with God at the temple. And here he is in the last place he can look back while still in Israel and see his home. And what does he hear? The taunts of God's enemies. Where is your God now? He didn't keep you safe. He didn't preserve the temple. We've conquered you. We've devastated you. We've looted your temple. We've taken everything of value away with us. And now we're taking the priests with us as well. So they can't do their work. And so he says in verse 7, deep calls to deep. I looked for streams of refreshment. Instead, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Some of you may recognize that language if you were involved in VBS this year. That verse, all your waves and breakers have gone over me. The psalmist here is either quoting Jonah or Jonah is quoting him. I don't know which it is, but it's the language of Jonah. It's the exact phrases, exact words from Jonah. And it expresses his lament that evil seems to be winning. And that's the desperation of this Lament, seeking still waters and finding a raging sea. But even in the midst of this sea, notice he's not without help. Just as true for us, if you look back on your life, the worst moments of your life, you have to admit, as dark as it was, God was there. And he beautifully expresses this in verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his 
has said. We thought about that word last week. His covenant love, his steadfast love, his faithful love, his 1 Corinthians 13 love. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's has said. And he says, by day, you're commanding your steadfast love as I'm marching in captivity away from my home, away from the temple. And at night, your song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist then is confessing what you have said to me many times and I have said to you, that in our worst times, we were never entirely without comfort. Exile never meant, exile never means total abandonment for the God's people. God's faithfulness is eternal and it cannot be utterly withdrawn. That being said, the lament is real. The grief is real and verse 10 is graphic. Like a deadly wound in my bones, says the psalmist, that is how the taunts of the wicked feel. If this was written about the exile, and I, I think it certainly was, then you can begin to imagine how this all would have felt to him. The pagan people ransacking the precious temple he served in, and all the while the understanding that they would have had that in the defeat of Israel, what has been seen ultimately is that their gods were more powerful than our God. And isn't that the sense of things that we often have, especially in our cultural moment, that our weapons are weak and the weapons of the enemy are strong and that they dominate and we languish. And so we can understand some of the deepness, the depths of the lament here. And so it deeply pains him, as I hope it does you more and more, to hear God publicly maligned and mocked. It adds to the pain of his exile. It's not just going away from the temple. It's the way it's happening. It's It's happening under oppression and under defeat. And I don't think it's hard, is it? Uh, to connect these dots to our own lives. It isn't just our longing for heaven, verse 1. It's our growing sense of the loss of home and all that is happening here. The endless violence, the cruelty, the arrogance of the world that sickens us and makes us lament. Now, if you're there, and I would imagine all of us are to some degree in a place of lament, on and off at times, please know that Jesus has been there before you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Elder Boyajan read that passage for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ was weeping and agonizing, he chose to quote from this psalm. He quote verse 6. In the original, it's word for word. It's not as clear in the English, but it's word for word in the original. Matthew writes that Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And that opening phrase about the sorrowfulness of his heart is is taken right from this psalm. This was his lament. It was part of his lament as he faced the excruciating mockery and pain of the cross. And because the sons of Korah and because our great high priest Jesus uses laments, understand what that means. It means that we must be free to use this genre too. Lamentation or grieving, even intense grieving, 
is not prohibited to us. In fact, as we look at scripture and history, I think we can confidently say that we will, at some point in our lives, need lamentation to get through life. Maybe one of the greatest, in my mind, at least one of the greatest tragedies of modern American Christianity is that it is the first era of Christianity, from what I can see, it's the first era that has not made the Psalms central to the worship of the church. For 2,000 years, the Psalms are absolutely central to everything the church does in worship, and yet something of that has been lost in the last about 50 years. And maybe it's that loss, maybe it's the loss of the Psalms that has made it difficult for us as the American church to publicly mourn, to know how to lament. Maybe this is why it was in our context, in the American context, that we developed this twisted, false form of Christianity that you've heard about called the health and wealth movement. It's a sick, perverted form of Christianity because it's Christianity without lament, without mourning at its heart. But even for those outside of the health and wealth movement, popular American Christianity hasn't left us a lot of tools to teach us how to grieve intensely, how to lament. Many of us, uh, before we came here at least, we attended worship services year after year after year in which there was never a single moment given to real lament or sorrow whether, as we do each week, a lament over sin, where we grieve over sin, where there's that sort of seriousness and sadness, or a lament over something else. Everything was so cheerful. Everything was so upbeat. But at some point, I think that becomes suffocating, don't you? Not because I want us, I don't want us to be sad all the time. I don't want us to be dour. I like to laugh but because we need to know how to cry just as we need to know how to sing and to laugh and to praise. And the sons of Korah, priests who were charged with helping us worship, taught us to lament. So whether we're speaking of our church, of us individually, whether we're speaking of Job, who lamented wonderfully, or Jonah, who lamented with these words, or Jesus, who lamented with the words of this psalm and Psalm 22 and others, we need to speak about what is happening to us. Maybe not publicly, maybe not to everyone, maybe not right away, but certainly to God and usually eventually to other people as well. And that is what lament provides to us. And that's what makes these two verses so precious. And yet with this lament, notice now lastly, and this is true in all of scripture, scripture never leaves us just with lament. For there is in the midst of this tremendous lament, a wonderful refrain, isn't there? There's a chorus. It's in verses five, verse 11, and then again at the end of Psalm 43. And hear those words again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, or literally my Yeshua. Three times, three times, the psalmist, as it were, goes under the waves of despair and depression. And he's almost buried in grief. And yet three times, 
by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he comes back up for air, and we hear this simple and wonderful refrain. Just notice with me quickly two wonderful things about this refrain. First of all, notice what he's doing in it. Notice what he's doing in it. In this refrain, the psalmist stops listening to himself, and he starts preaching to himself. And that's one of the most important, maybe the most important thing, and one of the only helpful things you can do in despair and discouragement. Stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. It's actually a kind of liturgy, as one author put it. His one self, his mourning self, is now speaking to his liturgical self. At one level, as a man, he's in total despair. He's going into exile. He's going away from the temple. His career is ruined. And he's in deep depression about the taunts of those around him. And yet in the refrain, that man, the part of him that is mourning, meets the part of him that knows God and knows theology and knows truth and is a priest. And the priest says, why? Why are you staying here? And the priest speaks to him and says, hope in God. Remember who God is. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wonderful pastor, preacher, theologian, said that most of the problems in our lives, most of the problems in our lives are caused by us listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. And he had passages like this in mind. It's okay to listen to yourself, to listen to that inner dialogue of anguish and pain. But at some point, at some point, we need to start talking to ourselves, reminding ourselves of who God is, of what he has done for his son and what he has done for us in his son. And of course, secondly, that's what's here. Because it's not accidental that at the heart of this refrain, is the wonderful word Yeshua or Joshua, or you know it as Jesus. Why should the soul not be in anguish? Why should the soul not remain forever in turmoil? Why not just look at the world, look at our own lives, look at the pain and suffering, look at the misery and just give up? Or simply just put your head down, try and get through as quickly as you can and live in despair. Here's why. Because God is... Yeshua, he is my salvation. And therefore, the darkness cannot win. The sadness cannot have the last say. I will hope in him. This is what the refrain preaches, and this is how he is held up. The only response then to sadness, to real gut-wrenching sadness, is liturgy. It's worship. It's praise. It's hope. It's faith. It's to say in our own heart one more time, hope in God. Hope in him. I will yet praise him. In a particularly dark moment of his life, Samuel Rutherford was dealing with the waves and the billows were crashing over him. He, he wrote very openly to his congregation about his personal struggles He would tell them in a way very few of us would be even willing to do. He would just be very transparent. He would write them and say, you know, some days I'm trusting God, some days I'm not. Some moments I am, some moments I'm not. And in one of his letters, he says to one of his parishioners, you know what I am? I'm a man with all legs and no hands. 
And he explained what he meant. He said, with all my legs, I run to his promises because I'm grieving so badly. I'm hurting so badly. But then I get there and I have no hands to grab on them. And Rutherford says, so I just reach out the stump of a hand and say, Jesus, do a miracle so that I can hope and have faith in this promise. Let's pray. Father, we are such people, grieving so many things, countless sorrows and pains. And indeed, we are all feet running to and fro, looking for hope, looking even to your promises. And yet, when we come to one, when we come to a psalm like this, we find we have no hands to grab onto it, no way to keep ourselves above the waves. So we give ourselves entirely to Christ. We pray, strengthen us in him. Give to the one in despair today hope in him, for this rock is set, this rock cannot be moved, and this rock holds. Jesus loves his people. Jesus will save his people. We will praise you once again and forever. Amen.